Where we left off, we had discussed some of the shifting attitudes, changes to the American psyche, and overall culture of the United States that had informed the beginning of the rural cemetery movement. In 1831, Mount Auburn Cemetery became the first so-called rural cemetery in the United States. Today, I want to explore exactly what that means, how it reflected the values of American culture, and more importantly, how it changed cemeteries forever. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So, I got a little carried away with the history of the culture and giving you the background information. Didn't actually have time to get to Mount Auburn Cemetery. So, today I'm going to take a step back, and if you have not listened to the previous episode where I lay out what happens after Grove Street, Père Lachaise in Paris, the changes in the United States, all of that, go back and listen to it, because otherwise not a lot of this is going to make sense. If you have listened to that, I think that at this point we have amply established that there was a change in pretty much everything in America. Rapid industrialization, growth of cities, a focus on institutions that could improve people's quality of life, a change in the attitude about religion and philosophy. Which brings us to a hillside in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1831. So, Where last we had left off was at the dedication of the cemetery in September of that year. It was the culmination of six years of work started by Jacob Bigelow, Harvard professor, doctor, horticulturist, amateur enthusiast about just about everything. So his idea was to start a rural cemetery. Now, the term rural cemetery was not something that happened right away, but it is a term that catches on quickly. Also, these are often known as garden cemeteries. It's a less used term. Um, It's also one I don't necessarily like. Um, I think that rural is a much better idea because it if we really were to call these what they are, they're suburban cemeteries, they're not rural. The reference to rural does not really refer to the physical location of them. Though at the time, a cemetery that was 10 miles outside of Boston would have been considered quite rural. Rural is more an ideology. An ideology about rural versus urban. It's an idea about how the land is used. Not necessarily a rural urban, suburban type of a thing. But for the most part, these are located in what I would today consider the suburbs. Almost all of these today are very much urban. So if we look at all of the big three, the original three cemeteries. So you have Mount Auburn. Then the second rural cemetery, which will be established, is Greenwood in Brooklyn. The third will be Laurel Hill in Philadelphia. All of these at the time are several miles outside of the city center. All of them today are 100% in the middle of a city. All of them, without a doubt. So the cities do continue to grow, but at the time, they could not anticipate just how much cities would continue to grow. So I think that's an important distinction. So 
That's actually the first rule. So I put together a list of 15 characteristics of rural cemeteries. So when we're talking about a rural cemetery, if you look at a cemetery, you can almost immediately identify it. The first is that they are outside the city, anywhere between three and 10 miles outside the city. And the plan was the same way that it was with Grove Street, that they would not be eventually overtaken by development. As we know, that didn't work for Grove Street. It certainly didn't work for the majority of rural cemeteries. There are very few that are actually rural even today. The second, they are large. They are larger than anything that has ever existed previously, not just in the United States, but really even in Europe. Now, there are larger Wadi al-Salam. There are plenty of bigger cemeteries than Mount Auburn. But at the time, that was not the norm. And it certainly was not the norm for Western Christian cemeteries. So it was large. And that was also one of the reasons that these had to be outside the city. That was the only place that you could buy land that cheap in such abundance. Third, third rule is that they are private cemeteries. Now, private is a term that often gets confused, but they are private in the sense that they are not municipal. Now, this is a big distinction from Père Lachaise, because if you recall, Père Lachaise was a municipal cemetery. And I, in the cemetery world, have made a few enemies over my assertion that the majority of southern cemeteries, which claim to be rural cemeteries, are in fact not. And the reason is, is that in the south, they didn't form cemetery corporations. And I'm going to talk about corporations in just a second. In the south, you have cemeteries which in their aesthetics the type of monuments, the way that they're laid out, they resemble rural cemeteries, but they are not rural cemeteries. Because one of the defining characteristics of a rural cemetery is, is a private stockholder corporation. Period. End of story. That's a hill I'll die on. So Père Lachaise is not truly a rural cemetery. And it's not a rural cemetery because it's a municipal cemetery. And municipal cemeteries even though they may aesthetically resemble rural cemeteries, are not rural cemeteries in the way that they are run. Both in terms of lot sales, in terms of the way that they are laid out, in the way that they are taken care of, all of those things are different. And so I think it's an important distinction to make. And unfortunately, this is one of the reasons that rural cemeteries, in general, tend to look a lot better and tend to be better preserved than municipal cemeteries, because municipal cemeteries don't have the same stopgap measures. They don't have perpetual care funds, which we'll talk a little bit about later. They don't have stockholder corporations. They don't have huge endowments. They don't have those things. And so even though the monuments might be pretty and they might look like rural cemetery monuments, they're not. Again, a hill I will die on and one that a lot of people don't agree with. And I often will read National Register nominations. I will read descriptions. And I'll be like, "Mm mm-mm, you're not a rural cemetery. And I say that not to be a jerk, but because there are certain things that define rural cemeteries. And there are certain things that set rural cemeteries apart. And one of them is that they were businesses. A hundred percent. They were private businesses And while they were not for profit, because cemeteries, strictly speaking, are not for profit, they technically are, even though they are non-profit organizations and that will eventually be something that they decide in the courts, that cemeteries are not for profit in the sense that a traditional business is, 
they are a business and they are in sales and there are stockholders that you have to appease. All of those things are a major component of how rural cemeteries develop and operate. And I would love to to someday talk about like the management of cemeteries and cemetery superintendents, which is a job. It is a very much a job and it's a job that is largely driven by how innovation and how really working the system can maximize profit. So again, for their joint stockholder corporations. Now, this is something that harkens back to James Hillhouse and his vision, where he was afraid that his grave would be neglected after his death when there were no longer family members there to take care of him. And the joint stockholder corporation is a loophole in that, where you buy shares, which can be passed on, can be inherited by your descendants, and they will take care of the cemetery after you. And if not, like they can go back to the stockholder corporation and they essentially can be resold or reinvested. So that way there will always be people who are there looking out for your assets, looking out for your plot, who will be making the improvements, who will be paving the roads, trimming the trees, doing all the things that need to be done to keep a cemetery not only operating, but looking good. Five, Royal Cemeteries offered a variety of lot sales. However, overall, they focused on the family lot. This is a big divergence from both the Puritan model and even to a degree the Hill House model. So remember, the Puritans, you got buried next to whoever died before you. You were not buried with your family unless you were a woman who died in childbirth that was buried with your baby. So if old Mrs. Smith down the road died the week before your husband, your husband was buried next to her. And if you don't die for another 15 years, you're on the opposite side of the churchyard. Now, James Hillhouse did encourage the purchase of family plots, but also portions of the cemetery, remember, were bought by different church congregations. They were bought by Yale University. So it still didn't guarantee that you were buried together in a plot. In rural cemeteries, often a portion was set aside for individual or smaller grave sections, not whole big family plots. But family plots were the norm. And while they were not cheap, if you look at the initial investment in places like Mount Auburn, you had to have usually between $60 and $100 to get you started, which was a lot of money back in 1830. They did offer individual graves. That was not the focus, but the idea was that they were to a certain degree egalitarian in the fact that they were a little bit more accessible to all. The family lot concept, before we move on, also will play into the type of monuments that are there. Now, it's interesting, having read a number of the books on the subject, this is where a lot of people get things wrong, and I'll tell you exactly why they get things wrong. But the idea of a family plot was that it was large enough to accommodate multiple monuments and multiple generations. Six, they were non-secretarian. Non-secretarian means that there is not one particular sect or congregation of a religion or a denomination that is allowed to be buried there. So it's not like this is the Baptist churchyard, this is the Quaker churchyard. This was open to all religions, but generally only Protestant. So the non-secretarian thing is a little bit of a misnomer. Most cemeteries today, rural cemeteries that are still active, have come around to truly being non-secretarian. And so if you are Jewish or something else, you could be buried there. But for the most part, they allowed any Protestant in good standing to be buried there. Catholics 
very seldom, if ever, wanted any part of the rural cemetery movement. They did their own thing. Jews generally did their own thing. Outside of that, really, it depends. Um, But those were the three major religious groups in the United States. But any Protestant was generally allowed to be buried in them. And these are very much Protestant institutions. Because going back to that Second Great Awakening aspect, all of those were still Protestant sects. So even, and it's it's hard to classify because I'm not sure if Seventh-day Adventists and Latter-day Saints would classify themselves as Protestants, but I think in terms of the overarching belief system, that's generally where they fall. Um, the other thing, and this is something that I have not read universally, but I think was kind of unspoken, is that the cemeteries were traditionally racially segregated. Now, The further south you go, the more true this is. But you will find that even in New England and places like that, and again, this is not universal, but many rural cemeteries were racially segregated, at least in the beginning. Number eight, the landscape. So the landscape focused on keeping things as natural as possible. So there were rolling hills and valleys and dales and little crevices. There were curvilinear roads, so the roads were not laid out in a straight grid pattern like they had been in Grove Street Burial Ground. They curved with the landscape. They were winding. They slowly worked their way to the top of hills. There were lots of them. Even today, if I go into rural cemeteries, I very routinely get lost and I get turned around because the roads wind everywhere. Also, to keep up with that experience, the roads were generally given what I would call sylvan names. Elmway, Holly Lane. They are given names to me like some sort of inane subdivision. Often some of these terms I think are interesting because they all they often harken back to certain things. And this is probably a good time to mention that when we talk about the rural cemetery movement, the term cemetery in and of itself is a big part of the rural cemetery movement. The word cemetery comes from the Greek word for sleeping place. Now, if you read the commentary that is written by men who start rural cemeteries, they claim that they are going back to the original Christian model, that Christians had originally referred to their burial places as cemeteries to separate themselves from the pagans, who the pagans did not believe in the resurrection and they did not believe that corpses were just sleeping until the second coming of Christ. This sounds like a convenient mythology, so do with that what you will. I think this was marketing, because even Grove Street is known as a burial ground. Burial ground focuses on the burial. It focuses on the death. Cemetery, by repackaging it as a sleeping place, as a place of rest, really gives it a much more beautiful image And so I think that the popularization of cemetery, like the use of these sylvan names, like the use of these classical terms, really ties into the romanticism of the period. They are a reflection of that sublime, of the beauty of experience, all of those things. Nine, monuments. So marble is the material of the day. Historically, particularly in New England, but also in coastal towns as far south as Mobile, Alabama and New Orleans, slate had always been the preferred material. Granite was very hard to work. 
Um, in early cemeteries, you may occasionally see a granite marker, but usually it will just have like an initial or a date chipped in because it was very hard to work. Granite really doesn't come into popularity until we have steam-powered machines and we're not quite there yet. That'll be late 19th century. But marble was soft and marble could be worked. Marble was white and sparkling and beautiful and it carved like butter. So you could have very elaborate monuments. You could have very detailed, very beautiful sculptures. This was the most popular thing to the point where cemeteries like Mount Auburn actually banned slate, calling slate old fashioned, calling it gloomy. They wanted these to be landscapes of supreme beauty. So marble was the chosen material and often the only permitted material for a very long time until granite gains popularity. 10. To further discuss monuments, the monuments tend to be grand. They are large, they are expressive, and often are numerous. In the rural cemetery period, the popular idea is that every person gets a monument. And these, for the most part, are not modest headstones. They are large and they tend to encompass what we would today call revival styles. Egyptian revival, like the gate at Mount Auburn. Classical revival, think banks, think Greek temples. Gothic revivals, all the arched windows and pointy spires. Many, many more. These revival styles, things like urns, things like sarcophagi, things like temples. All of them are extremely popular. Obelisks. Obelisks, because who doesn't love a nice phallic grave symbol? All of them are very popular, even pyramids for the Egyptian revivalists, not just obelisks, but pyramids too. These fill up the landscape. And when you look at some of these monuments, they are impressive. They are based off things from classical literature. They are based off sketches. This is the same time period where it's very fashionable for men to go on grand tours of Europe when they come of age, where everybody and their brother is going over to Italy and to Greece to study ruins. This has a huge influence on American architecture, and it likewise has a huge influence on American funerary architecture. Which brings me to number 11. Family cemetery lots were seen as an extension of the home. If you have read anything about Victorian culture, you know that the home was really at the heart of it and that you showed your status through your home, the decorations and the knickknacks, the number of servants you had, the way that your children dressed, the location in which you lived were all vitally important in Victorian society. There are some great books that you can read out there about the Victorian home that go into like all of the niceties and differences of this, what type of calling cards you used, all of those things. And funerals, which keep in mind that the Victorian era technically starts in 1837, so about six years after Mount Auburn is founded, the Victorian era and rural cemeteries largely overlap. So families who were prestigious would own a house in the best part of town, and they would own a funeral lot in the best rural cemetery. Both were seen as an extension of that. Your domesticity, your elevated place in society, was largely defined by the type of life that you led and by the aesthetics of that life. 
Often the same famous architects who designed your home would design the mausoleum on your cemetery plot. Even the layout, so these were generally curbed with marble or granite curbing. They were often elevated. They often had very elaborate wrought iron fences around them with a gate with your family name, just like you would have your name on your mailbox today. They were seen as an expression of your refinement. And people who could not afford those things came and they were just as covetous of cemetery lots as they would be of a really nice house. Back in the day, that was people cruising Zillow. They would go to the rural cemetery and they would see your cemetery plot. Part of this problem, though, and, I, and this is something that will eventually come to catch up with rural cemeteries, is that as a result, over time, because these plots were supposed to be for multi-generational use, they could get quite cluttered. And there's always one I like to point out at Oakland Cemetery here in Atlanta. Claims to be a rural cemetery. It's not. It's a municipal cemetery. But there is a plot there that is very typical where there is an urn and an obelisk and a cherub sitting on a Roman ruin and a broken column and a mausoleum. And you look at it and you're like, oh, wow, every Victorian symbol, every type of monument is in this one lot. And I always be like, this is what Victorians were like. It's the same thing. Google any picture of what did a Victorian house look like. Lots of heavy velvet draperies, lots of knickknacks, ferns everywhere. To me, Victorian cemetery plots very much look like Victorian homes. They reflect the same values and the same aesthetics. 13. The trend quickly spreads. So it spreads first, as I said, to New York in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Then it spreads south to Laurel Hill in Philadelphia. And it will continue to grow from there. Now, I already made my point about southern cemeteries. The grandest of the rural cemeteries are in the Northeast and the Midwest. And I say this as somebody who has visited quite a few of them. Now, that's not to say that there are not some remarkable cemeteries, things like Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston, Laurel Grove and Bonaventure in Savannah. There are many, many, many significant cemeteries. Arguably, Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky is, I think, one of the top five cemeteries in the United States for sheer grandeur. That's not to say that they don't exist, but the overwhelming majority do pop up in the Northeast and the Midwest first. It will take a lot longer for the trend to trickle down South, and even then it's in a much con more controlled environment. And many of them are, as I already stated, rural cemeteries that are really municipal cemeteries masquerading. 14, they had a system of improvements. So one of the interesting things is, is if you look at the records of these cemeteries, you can see the stockholders' minutes, you can see the decisions that they make. They take the business of cemeteries very seriously. And arguably, their success will continue to shape American hygiene, American practices for the next century. Because when you see American cemetery superintendents, a lot of them overlap with the medical field. They are important businessmen. They are really people who are kind of tastemakers and influencers. And I saw that recently that um, one of the leaders of one of the cemeteries here in Atlanta, where I live, 
I looked at it and he was the one that was putting up health clinics around the city. He was the one that was really advocating for health care and reform. So cemeteries often set trends. They were not just cemeteries. They were a certain part of the community and they also put out information regarding health and wellness. Fifteen, and this is a big one. These were tourist attractions. Now, when I talked previously about Perilous Chasse, I talked about the trend of moving famous people to cemeteries to attract burials. This 1,000% happened in the United States too. Where often celebrities were moved from old colonial graveyards and they were moved to rural cemeteries as attractions. And this particularly happens in places like Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, you get Laurel Hill. Laurel Hill is established on Ridge Avenue, overlooking the Schuylkill River. It is quite spectacular. They eventually will move across the road and there's a bridge between the two sections of the cemetery. It's very impressive. But within the next few years, you have half a dozen rural cemeteries pop up, including Mount Vernon, which is right across the street. But there are a large number of these, sadly, many of which no longer exist because they were removed pretty blatantly between like the 20s and the 60s in Philadelphia. There was just a massacre of cemeteries. But the idea was is that like Laurel Hill was always going to be at the top, but if you couldn't afford Laurel Hill or if it wasn't convenient to you, like how did the other cemeteries compete? And this was one of the ways that as multiple rural cemeteries popped up and as there was competition, they could set themselves apart. The second thing was is that as tourist attractions, these cemeteries really, uh, it's hard to express just how popular they were. So, for example, in the 1840s, the most popular tourist attraction in the state of New York was Niagara Falls. Understandably, really big waterfall, really impressive, hard not to be impressed by Niagara Falls. The second was Greenwood Cemetery. Now, it's hard to say because in, you know, the post-pandemic world, cemeteries have, again, become very chic. And a lot of people visited them because they were a great way to get outside, all of those things. But cemeteries were the thing. And when we talk about why, there's a very important reason for that. It's because in rapidly growing, gritty industrial cities, they were a breath of fresh air, literally. There were no parks. We at this point are like 50 years away from Central Park in New York City. Long before there was a Central Park, there was Greenwood Cemetery. Now, Boston has the oldest public park in the United States and the Boston Common, But still, Mount Auburn was a very different experience than the Boston Common. You were able to get outside of the city. People took picnics. People took drives. They were so popular that it became necessary to have a lot holder only day because they were too much of like a fairground and a party ground for people to really have the prayerful, quiet reflection at their loved one's graves. So generally, Sunday was a lot holder only day where you had these tickets that showed you owned a lot and you actually had to show your ticket to be admitted to the cemetery on a Sunday. But as tourist attractions, that's one of the reasons that this trend spread so quickly is because people would literally take trips up and down the coast visiting these cemeteries and take notes on them and take them back. Also, people were able to really specify them to their own area. 
And one of the reasons that sometimes the Midwestern cemeteries are not quite as impressive is that they don't have the rolling hills. They don't necessarily have the rivers. They don't have the vistas that we do in the Northeast. So sometimes they had to adapt a little bit more and they had to make their own model. Um, it's very interesting to see places like um, Swan Point Cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island, which develops in the 1840s, so only about a decade after Mount Auburn. One thing that they had there was that in abundance was rocks. The ground was very rocky. And so when they pulled these rocks out, and I'm talking boulders left over from the last ice age, the, the wall around the cemetery, rather than using wrought iron or something else, they used the boulders. So one of the features of the landscape is all of these boulders that they pulled from the land when they were preparing the cemetery became the rock wall. So in visiting different cemeteries, you could see how different places handled different problems, how they used the landscape, all of these things. So this would become very popular where you would not only hire a landscape architect, but often these landscape architects would travel up and down the coast checking out the different competition. So dialing it back to Mount Auburn for just a second. Mount Auburn was all of these things and more. It was very quickly um, growing, and they saw the potential for all of these things, um, you know, the highlights. So again, like I said, they focused on architecture. They built quite a bit of architecture within the first 20 years of the cemetery's existence, um, starting with the gate, the Egyptian Revival Gate, then the chapel, and then in the 1850s, they added the Washington Tower. There was also a huge campaign, and this is interesting, this is actually a new thing that I learned when I was doing the research for this, that that initial relationship with the Massachusetts Horticultural Society quickly went south in the founding of Mount Auburn, and it mainly goes south over the decision to put in a number of sculptures. And these sculptures were of famous Bostonians. And the, there was a lot of disagreement with the lot holders about whether or not money should be spent on a sculptor to make these, why these men, who would pay for the care, who would pay for the maintenance and upkeep. And it's interesting because the Massachusetts Horticultural Society felt very strongly that their money should not be used to pay for it, the money of their investors. And they eventually pull out of the whole undertaking, and they will, in the 1840s, receive an almost quarter of a million dollar settlement from the cemetery. And I mention this not to smear anybody because it's an interesting story. And actually, if you're curious about the sculptures, they don't even end up at Mount Auburn. They're at Harvard now because the men were all Harvard alumni. But I think it goes to show that having a stockholder corporation is not as easy as anything else. It's not all smooth sailing, that there are sometimes disagreements about how money should be spent, about changing trends. For example, should a crematorium be installed? This becomes a huge conflict for many rural cemeteries later on as the rise of cremation gets popularized. Mount Auburn puts theirs in in the 1890s. And actually, the Bigelow Chapel, designed in the 1840s, has to be renovated to accommodate a columbarium and um, crematorium. There's a lot of pressure over whether or not the chapel should ever be built. A lot of people thought it was ridiculous. They said that people want to have funerals at their home church. That turns out to be not true. And that the chapel is still very popular for funerals today, so much so that they recently built like a new reception room on the outside. It's very modern and glass. I can see it being very divisive, but they also do a ton of weddings now. So changing trends often are mitigated by having these board and having stockholders who can make decisions one way or another. 
And I like that because it, it makes them seem like a little bit less idealistic where you understand, well, they have growing pains just the same as anybody else. It seems like these are the way of the future. These gardens of graves, these beautiful romantic landscapes which match the modern zeitgeist and ideals. But they are not without their criticisms. And so one of the things I wanted to look at is some of the criticisms that pop up almost immediately about these cemeteries. Because that's not something that's talked about a lot, even in the cemetery community. It's just that like, then the rural cemetery movement came and everything changed and these cemeteries are great and they're beautiful. It wasn't all true. There was a lot of positive buzz. There were a lot of people saying like, we wish we had cemeteries like this. And certainly they built a lot more, but they were not without their criticisms. The first question is, is beauty and a rebranding of death appropriate? I like this quote. It says, quote, the visitor to Mount Auburn might assume he is automatically pardoned. But one should not assume that because God makes the beauty of Mount Auburn available to all, that he ceases to make a distinction of human character. So this sounds like a grumpy Puritan trying to hold on to old tradition, saying that like, well, if we think it's all beauty and flowers and that when you die, you're going to go to this beautiful garden and it's just going to be the sublime and you're going to be out there enjoying nature and becoming one with nature. What about eternal damnation? What about that, huh? You know, your relatives are going to come there and they're going to feel great and they're going to enjoy a nice picnic, but you're burning in hell. And that's basically what they were worried about is that this would make people spiritually lazy, that they wouldn't do the work, that they wouldn't strive to be good people. Which is obviously essentially the opposite of that whole social justice reform idea. But, interesting commentary. To continue this, I really, that, by the way, that was Nehemiah Adams in 1834, three years after. T.D. Wolseley also weighs in on this in 1849 and says, quote, only in such solitude can one realize what it is to be a pilgrim and a stranger on earth and how death isolates its passengers from all that they loved and valued them and all that loved and valued them once. He was like, you die alone, you're going to rot in the ground, and there is no happy endings. These people are real buzzkills. I bet Nehemiah and TD were just great at parties. I bet they were doing keg stands every night. But there is this push and pull, and you can see how there are like these new ideas that are flourishing, but some people are like, uh-uh, nope, nope, it's all going to end badly. You think that you're going to have your pretty cemeteries and it's going to be all okay, but no, it's not. Second criticism was that by having family lots, this separated people from their Christian church community. And this is something that I, I struggle to see. And as somebody who's not particularly religious, I don't necessarily understand it. But the idea is that by being buried with the members of your congregation, that you had a shared ideal and a vision of the resurrection. Now, again, I'm not a theologian. I understand that there are differences between how Protestant denominations see salvation and see the resurrection, but they do share a similar biblical relief, belief in resurrection and redemption. Now, 
they are very different than Catholics in this view. I already said Catholics weren't interested in the rural cemetery movement. They did their own thing. So assuming that they are all Protestants and that they believe that you are saved through grace alone, not good deeds, that you are saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, can't we put aside our petty little differences, our interpretations of the Bible, and just all get along? And I'm going to be honest with you, this is a criticism that I think largely most people don't believe. Most people tend to think that, like, I am with people who are at least generally like-minded, who are good Christians, who are baptized, who believe in the Bible, and I think that most people were able to get over this. Third, can a shared sacred space have democratic and and commercial value? So this is the idea that, like, should a sacred space, should a cemetery be a business? This is something also I think that people did not seem to have a problem with. And I think the problem really stems to the fact that, like, they were always paying for burial. At least in some form, whether it was paying to the church sexton, whether it was paying to the Catholic church back in Europe. Um, granted, yes, there were pauper and indigent burials, but I think that for the most part, people saw this as like, yeah, it's a business now, but, you know, these people are still good people. They're doing right by our dead. I don't think that people really got hung up on this. The idea of democratic value in allowing everybody to be buried, because sure, there were still potash fields, there were still those things, and those are things that tend to get ignored in the story of rural cemeteries, is the fact that while they were relatively egalitarian, they were not open to all, not by a long shot. So I think some people saw them as trying to erase the differences that exist in life, and to a degree they are. The next criticism is that they're anti-Republican, anti-American. And this comes from a couple of things. First of all, they glorify old world styles. A lot of people said, we are Americans, we are new, we are fresh, we're doing our own thing. Why are we putting up all these monuments that look like they come from Europe, that look Greek and Roman? Second, that they were overly showy, that it became a competition. Well, if Whoever dies with the most toys wins isn't the most American value ever. These people seem to be clinging to an illusion. That one just seems silly because if there is anything that's excessive and American, it's excess and overspending. So I don't think that cemeteries are necessarily any different. Um, You know, whoever has the biggest obelisk probably has the smallest dick. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we are looking at is people who are trying to make a statement about themselves that will continue long after their death. So that way, when you walk up to it, even 100 years from now, if you don't know who they are, you know they were somebody. And so this is, to me, the most American thing ever. Unless you actually had guns on top of a tomb, I can't think of something that's more American. The same criticism comes about monuments where they are classical and pagan symbols on monuments and that that is an abandonment of our Christian ideals. And a lot of times you will see people actually trying to mitigate this. This is one that people take seriously. So, for example, the inverted torch showing a life being extinguished. If you look at inverted torches in the majority of rural cemeteries, you will see that the flame is creeping upwards, even though it's inverted. And that is supposed to show a hope of the resurrection, that even though we die, there is eternal life. So they actually do get through to them with that. And they actually do try to mitigate with that. 
Um, but still, like, the, the, some of these, like, reading the newspaper accounts, somebody called them gigaws and expensive follies, which, again, they are. It is a curated landscape where people see what they want to see. It's not truly wild. It's not truly organic. It's what people want to see. One argument said, quote, the ornamentation of the sepulcher should be trees and flowers. Let the monuments be found in the noble forests of our land. Sorry, sir. Again, this is America. Then my favorite, and this is a much later commentary by James Russell Lowell, very famous Massachusetts author. He wrote in 1876 to a friend in Baltimore, quote, Bostonians generally, and I am not a Bostonian, seem to have two notions of hospitality. A dinner with people that you never saw before and hope to never see again. And a drive in Mount Auburn Cemetery, where you can see the worst that man can do in the way of disfiguring nature. Your memory of dinner is expected to reconcile you with the prospect of the graveyard, which may be my favorite one. So it's interesting. Not everybody loves rural cemeteries, but... I tend to think of it along the lines of not everybody loves every trend, but there are certain trends that catch on regardless. I never owned a pair of Uggs, but certainly I could see why they appealed to some people. And I think that that was it. I think that this was capturing largely the shifting attitude. It was a way that Americans could distinguish themselves. And to a degree, I don't think that whether you agree with the paganness, whether you agree with the symbolism, the -the over-the-topness, I think that you can agree that it was a pretty good model in many ways. It's not a perfect model, and there are many things that need to be improved upon. And as I go on, I will talk a lot more about this. One of the biggest problems is, is that with a stockholder corporation, you only have a functioning model as long as you have land to sell. And oops, what happens when you have no more graves to sell and you're not bringing in profit anymore? And that's where the question of perpetual care will come in. Because perpetual care, which is something that is very common in cemeteries today, is not something that is common in 1831 when Mount Auburn is founded. And it is not a universal thing until starting in about the 1870s. So those cemeteries that are founded in roughly the first 40 to 50 years of the rural cemetery movement, many of them will go on to have great financial difficulties later in the 20th, 19th and 20th century because they don't have money to keep up their grounds once they no longer have graves to sell. So it's not a perfect model. Not anticipating growth of cities, not anticipating changing technologies. Like there are a lot of shortfalls of rural cemeteries and they are shortfalls that will eventually have to be corrected. And that's why rural cemeteries, even though they are arguably the biggest innovation that we will talk about today in this history of cemeteries, they are, they, they are the big one. They are the game changers. They do a lot of things. And in many ways, they continue to be the model, at least in terms of how cemeteries are set up, even though the aesthetics will change, even though some of the minute details will change. Cemeteries even today that are founded still are founded largely on the principles of the rural cemetery movement. They change the world. I don't know how to express that, but they really do. The idea of buying a plot perpetually that will be taken care of perpetually the idea of the landscape, all of those things, they are core tenets of cemeteries that will continue forever. But they're not perfect, and they will be improved upon, and they will be altered to fit the changing zeitgeist of the American consciousness. 
Now, next week we're going to be doing a big jump ahead. I will give you like a brief overview of what happens in between, but the third step in the process when we talk about memorial parks, isn't going to come for almost 100 years. And other things happen in cemeteries in between, but they are smaller than sort of the next big way marker, which will happen in 1917. So I'm going to fast forward you a little bit. We're going to have to talk a little bit more about changing philosophy, changing views of the world, and changing business before we get into the meat of it. But I guarantee you, you thought Jacob Bigelow was cool. Wait till you meet Hubert Eaton. He is a train wreck of a man, but also genius and really a lot of fun. So hopefully you enjoyed that. You are caught up now. We are well into the 19th century. We've got all sorts of Victorian goodies going. Next week, I will continue with part three of the history of American cemeteries. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.